Midlands Today on Midlands 103 with Tullamore Motors, the all-new Renault Megane. Feel the drive. TullamoreMotors.ie When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Well, good morning. Thank heavens for the army. Is there ever an emergency they can't handle? You get snowed in. Here come the soldiers. Covid contact tracing. Again, bring in the soldiers. And now the airport. More on that a little later. And also coming up today, a young woman who was abused by her older brother when she was a child has described him going to prison as the beginning of the rest of her life. Is your landlord okay with you working from home? It is the latest insurance calamity. And on the lighter side of life, Brian Clunan shall be here to solve some DIY mysteries as well from 20 past 10. 0818 300 103 is the Midlands 103 comment line. You can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. She is a real-life Barbie doll. Sorry, I've just copped a picture of Margot Robbie, the actress, on one of the tabloids this morning, and she is actually dressed as Barbie because she's starring alongside Ryan Gosling in a movie about the Barbie doll, which is uh, making front-page pictures in various papers around the world today. But we'll start with the Irish Daily Star, Saving Private Flying, it says. A pun on Save It Private Ryan. Soldiers are being drafted in to fix the chaos at our airports, it says, with troops being trained to deal with the chronic queues in Dublin in what is shaping up to be a chaotic summer. We're only in June. July and August are the busiest months. So again, thank heavens for the soldiers. The front of the Irish Independent reveals the HSE's emergency plan to handle the next outbreak of COVID-19. And it talks about resurrecting, uh, contact tracing and testing and how there will be 200 ambulance service personnel trained as swabbing first responders and if there's a major COVID outbreak in, let's say, a workplace, those people will be drafted in to test in those large outbreak scenarios. Anyway, that's on the front of the Irish Independent. And the Irish Times tells you how a furious Donald Trump tried to join rioters on Capitol Hill on the 6th of January of last year. And even, according to one witness, grabbed the throat of one of his protection staff when they refused to allow him to do so. He also wanted them to take away the metal detectors, which had turned away members of the crowd who were carrying weapons. So a very sordid picture being painted by those witnesses so far. Mr Trump, for the record, denies these allegations and talks about how discredited some of the people making them are. Anyway... Let's go inside the papers, find out, uh, well, first of all, this horrible story covered in uh, the Irish Independent. We'll be coming back to it ourselves later. A woman who was raped by her older brother when she was only six years of age has said that by speaking out, she hopes others can do so as well. And you see pictures of Aoife Farrelly. She's 21 years of age now, but 
She could have stayed anonymous and she could have tried to move on with her life herself, but she waived her right to anonymity so that her brother Kean could be named after he was convicted of attacking her at various stages between the ages of six and eight. And he's now in his 30s. Uh, with an address in Old Castle, but originally from the Castle Pollard area of County Westmeath. And again, back to that story later. The Irish Times does a special feature on Tullamore in the aftermath of Ashling Murphy's killing and also the launch yesterday of the government's new strategy on gender-based violence and some €300 million Euro to be spent combating it. And it highlights the work of Tullamore and District Rotary Club, for instance, which sought opinions from 51 local groups representing more than 8,500 people on how Ireland could be made a safer place for women. And more than two-thirds of respondents believe the existing laws are not strong enough. And so the Rotary Club made a submission on the national strategy and the article goes on to interview Anne Clark, a regular guest on this programme from Offaly Domestic Violence Support Service. And various perspectives are sought. And it's worth a read if you're living in Tullamore and you're wondering, well, what has happened since that terrible killing in January? How is the town becoming a safer place? Now, are you allowed to work from home if you're in rented accommodation? Because it seems not all landlords are happy about this. And one of the reasons is insurance. So let's say you've got your five-year-old and you've got your laptop and you've got your desk and you've got your shredder. And the child, heaven forbid, sticks their hand into the shredder. Now, if, is it a home or is it a workplace when it comes to making a claim? Is the boss liable? Is the landlord liable? Are you liable because you weren't paying attention? And this is a whole Pandora's box that so far nobody wants to open. But sooner or later, there's going to be a case, there's going to be a claim, it'll be heard in court, and only then will everybody discover what case law will dictate. But the Irish Times, excuse me, the Irish Independent, has pulled out a number of ads for accommodation at the moment that specifically forbid working from home. And also, apart from the insurance reason, if you're living with the landlord themselves, they may be using their sitting room or some other communal area as their workplace from nine to five. And so they're putting on the ads that sitting rooms, kitchens and so on, they're not communal areas. So you get the room and that's that, Jack, which is, again, a further erosion of tenant rights. And not every landlord is doing this, but there are some. Anyway, that's in the Irish Independent. Uh, heaven forbid you had an emergency in the early hours of yesterday morning because more than 200 999 calls went unanswered. And the reason was a failure by BT Ireland. It has the contract to operate the emergency number and there was a technical fault between 1 and 2.15 a.m. yesterday and so the Gorthy have since followed up with all callers who were affected by this temporary outage and we can only hope there was nobody with a major urgent medical emergency somebody yeah, having a heart attack uh, an emergency of that nature 
And sometimes, look, technology will be technology. The gremlins get in, but it is of serious consequence when it affects the 999 line. The current contract with BT runs until 2025, and the department has asked for an immediate investigation. The revenue commissioners will not be collecting your licence fee after all. The TV licence, which at the moment is operated by OnPost, and despite much lobbying by RTE, which despite getting €200 million a year in licence fee, and despite getting €140 million in private advertising competing with independent media, uh, despite that, they're still not satisfied with their lot and they feel they need more and one of the ways they are tackling this is through evasion and you see the ads and you hear the ads about how the TV licence inspector will be knocking on your door well they had hoped in RTE that the revenue commissioners who are very accomplished when it comes to collecting money that they would take this over but the government has now ruled that out and next week, it's expected the Future of Media Commission report will be published. And that may give some clues as to how you'll be paying TV licence into the future and where the money will go. And in the other file marked New Laws in Ireland, the doll is to pass an out-of-this-world motion. I'm not kidding. According to the Irish Examiner, the Cabinet has authorised a motion in the Dáil to approve the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space. That's quite a mouthful. Including the Moon and other celestial bodies. It's better known as the Outer Space Treaty. And what it means is that no country will lay claim on all of these great resources in the heavens and if any astronaut gets into difficulty, they are considered to be ambassadors of humanity and should receive, in cases of accident or emergency, all the assistance to return to their home country. And Little Old Ireland is signing up to this as well. That's in the Irish Examiner. Question for you, if you have a few quid and you eat out from time to time, if you're fortunate enough to still be able to enjoy a meal and the great hospitality that Ireland can offer in spite of all the inflation that we've endured. What is the going rate for a tip? And I suppose we're talking about evening meals, because if you go for lunch, for instance, and it's one of these uh, buffet options and you've got your tray, yeah, the waiting staff might clean the tables after you, but do you leave a tip in that situation or do you just tip when you're out for a meal and every single need you may have, every whim is catered to, they wait on you hand and foot? But regardless, what is the going rate for a tip? Is it 10%? Is it 15%? Is it less because prices have gone up and when you pay for your meal, you pay for your meal? What is your attitude? The reason I ask... The journal.ie reports this morning how the government is to ban service charges on your bill unless all of that money goes to the staff because some employers have been taking a part of it or all of it under the guise of it being a tip and the staff see nothing. 
So unless they're going to hand it all over to their workers, they won't be allowed to do this. So going rate for a tip in your book. Finally, a mention, and unfortunately we're ending on a sad note now. The Join Our Boys Trust has been raising awareness of Duchenne muscular dystrophy for many years after three boys in the one family were all diagnosed with this condition. And it's a muscular disease and the muscles unfortunately waste away and become weaker and it's really, really life-limiting. And Paula... Uh, is the mum who has joined us many times on this programme and unfortunately she has shared on Facebook that Archie, her eldest, is very unwell and was supposed to be transferred to the National Cardiac Centre in Dublin but unfortunately somebody got the bed ahead of him and he is in a very, very weak state and effectively he's in heart failure and as this is a muscle disease, the heart is one of the most important muscles in your body. So it is under attack as well as all of his uh, limbs and the mobility and the sort of uh, signs more obvious that the disease is progressing. So she has made this appeal once again that if you can raise any money for the Research and Development Fund to tackle Duchenne muscular dystrophy, joinourboys.org is the website joinourboys.org slash donate if you can I just see the Gordy and Leash Hoffley issuing a warning about another scam I'll tell you more on that in a few minutes time but we now turn our attention to Dublin Airport and the front page story on the Daily Star concerns the queues which have plagued operations particularly in Terminal 1 for a number of weeks and fortunately uh, it would appear there are days of the week when it is not as challenging as others. Uh, Saving private flying is the headline on the star and they say soldiers will be drafted in to fix the chaos at the peak times that are expected during the months of July and August, traditionally the busiest time of year. So what exactly will they be doing? Because we've heard from the DAA that one of the challenges is it's quite specialised. It takes time to train somebody in the use of a metal detector that scans your bags and you need to figure out is something sinister or is it uh, safe to let it through? Connor King is the General Secretary of the Representative Association of Commissioned Officers. Connor, good morning. Good morning, Will. What's your understanding of the task soldiers will be given? So our understanding of the task that, that our, our members will be given is developing. Um, this was announced yesterday at about lunchtime with no consultation whatsoever with employee representatives, either PD4 or RACO. And at the time it was announced, there was absolutely no um, information available to us because, again, we hadn't been consulted like other normal employee sectors would be. But as we've been following the news and we've followed prime time last night, we've seen statements from the DAA, we're learning that it will be potentially uh, roles at security checkpoints, um, but, but on airfield security and perimeter fences. So I'm literally reading that from, from news stories that are appearing this morning, which is not really good enough when you consider that we are the, the employee representatives and we need to know what, 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 what our members are going to be doing. 
Well, okay, that is a huge communication issue. Leaving that to one side, though, based on that description, would you have the know-how already or would it require additional training before soldiers would be comfortable doing that? It will absolutely require additional training. One of the, the, the bits of information we're hearing is that they're going to have to send a number of personnel down to Shannon Airport, we're hearing, to conduct specialized, highly specialised training, and they will then train further Defence Forces personnel. Um, to, to bring it up to a complement that's available to release other DAA personnel to do other duties. So why Shannon? I would have thought uh, if the problem is in Dublin, then that's where you would train. Potentially, yes, but uh, again, the information and the clarification hasn't been, hasn't been made available to us, so we're only hearing little bits of information as it, comes, as it becomes available. In the normal course, if... Um, and People can recall the Phoenix Park, for instance, and the Pope visited here some years ago and it was signalled in advance and the, the army had a role to play. So what would be the typical preparation and lead time for an operation like this? Well, you have to obviously raise and, and concentrate an, a body of troops. You have to make sure that they are, their logistics are in place, that they're adequately rostered, that their logistics in terms of feeding, in terms of uh, rest arrangements are in place. And all those questions remain to be answered. And this is why normally there would be clear parameters set out and, and people would be told exactly what they're going to be doing. None of that is in place at this point in time, as far as we're aware. Um, so all we know really is that we have to pr provide troops to be on standby in the event what we're hearing is of a COVID-19 surge among DAA staff. Now, Defence Forces personnel are not, are, aren't immune to COVID-19 either. So it strikes me as odd that that would be used as a, as a reason. Really what the reason is, is because they're coming into the busy, air, busy period in the airport, July to August, leave periods, holiday periods. And again, soldiers also are entitled to leave and entitled to holidays. And in terms of staffing, the Defence Forces has been short-staffed for many, many years. Who do we turn to to backfill our critical staff shortages? And to what extent have you had staff shortages because of COVID or other reasons? Because of COVID, you know, we've we managed that. We, at the height of the pandemic, we worked in bubbles. But remember, we were doing a completely new and additional task throughout COVID in support of the HSE between contact tracing, running um, vaccination centres, mandatory hotel quarantine, logistics, etc. And we took that on willingly. But it comes at a cost and at a sacrifice. It comes potentially at the cancellation of leave. But it also comes at the cancellation of vital and essential collective training activities, which actually make sure that we are continuing our, our professional de development, our career progression, and making sure that we're ready to fulfil our laid-down roles in the White Paper. On so based on what was planned for the summer months, if soldiers are distracted and deployed to Dublin Airport, what is going to be sacrificed? Because you would have been busy anyway, I assume. Because obviously we've been told we need an extra 3,000 people to, to basically come up to a, a minimum credible defence of the state. You know, so that will take an awful lot of training, induction training, for example, recruits and cadets and apprentices, which will all be driven by our members, our instructors, our support staff. All these things will have to be set to one side if we're getting continually additional tasks. But like yesterday was the day the Defence Forces were supposed to have a memo to Cabinet with a roadmap to finally strengthen the Defence Forces and implement the recommendations of the Commission on the Defence Forces. Does this now signal an intent to continue doing more with less again? 
Well, it would seem whether it's been a snow crisis, a COVID crisis, an airport crisis, the Defence Forces are called upon to come to our aid in so many scenarios. And maybe part of that goes with the territory. Um, But this one hopefully will be a one-off. 250 staff close to were made redundant because of the COVID crisis in Dublin Airport. Presumably they're going to improve their own ranks over the months ahead and by this time next year you won't be called upon. But when do you hope to get the detail on those unanswered questions you outlined earlier? Well obviously we should have it already but we've we've sought clarification from both the military authorities and the Department of Defence yesterday and we're still waiting for that clarification. So let me stress um, Will, that the Defence Forces are always turned to in the country's time of need and will always step up where the state's insurance policy. Of that, there can be no doubt. We're never going to refuse to do any tasks that are assigned to us by government. That's not up for debate. We're just concerned that it's another example of the Defence Forces being used as emergency cover to compensate for management decisions in other state bodies. And I'll ask the question one more time. Who is coming to the Defence Forces need um, help or, or rescue even in, ter- in terms of our retention crisis? Nobody. We're, we, have to ca- we have to just muddle through with it. So, you know, every additional task takes from another task um, when we are so short in terms of our establishment. Conor King, grateful for your time. Thanks for taking the call. Conor King is General Secretary of RACO, which is the Representative Association of Commissioned Officers. He's from Athlone. Now, back to the question earlier about the going rate for tips in Ireland, because prices have gone up so much in hospitality. But then again, workers have had a torrid time for the last two years. So do you give 10% if you've had a good meal, great service? If you've perhaps been just out for a coffee and somebody drops the coffee down to your table, does that require a tip? Where is the line drawn? But Paul says you should always leave a tip. So much time is spent talking about the shortage of catering staff. Those who receive just minimum rates of pay, it's time to show them some appreciation. That's from Paul in County Leash. 083 30 10 103. Text or WhatsApp. Your going rate for a tip, if you could afford to. Well, cue all the cliches. The government are a bunch of space cadets. Or they live on a different planet. And so on. Well... Maybe it's true because the dole is to pass an out-of-this-world motion after the Cabinet approved uh, the terms of, and this is going to take a while, the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies, better known as the Outer Space Treaty for short. I can understand why. Shawnee Morris is here from the Midlands Astronomy Club. Good morning. Good morning, fellow space cadet here in studio. The Outer Space Treaty? Yeah, been in existence since 1967. Um, when uh, Sputnik 1 was first launched in 1957, it began to open up the minds of the then superpowers, which generally were just the United States and Russia, as to have that kind of Cold War conflict. You know, our rocket is bigger than yours and the competing for the milestones, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. So in 1967, um, under the auspices of the United Nations, this was drawn up by Russia, the United States and the UK. They were the first three. And later that year, it was brought in. And since then, 111 countries are now signatories and ratifiers of that treaty. Ireland is officially one of those 111 countries now. And it has been all about, you know, the fair use of space. You know, with the Cold Cold War as it was back in the 60s, 
uh, you know, they didn't want to be able to have one country try to outdo the other by putting nuclear weapons. You know, the whole Star Wars program. That's what it was nicknamed back then. Uh, so the treaty prohibits the use of space for nuclear warfare. Okay, I can understand all that when it comes to America, yeah. the NASA, Russia back then, China perhaps more in today's terms. But mm-hmm. why does Ireland have a stake in this? Well, Ireland is a member of the European Space Agency, so it's not necessarily a spacefaring nation, but it is a contributor to a space program. So as spacefaring nations, all 23 of those that have the capability to launch into space are signatories as well, or ratifiers of this treaty. Ireland, I suppose, by proxy, would have to be seen as one of those that's going to encourage the use of this treaty as well. It is contributing in some ways through technology, workforce, and so on like that. Uh, But... I mean, as things go with regards to what's happening here on Earth, I suppose there is a little bit of an element to which, you know, we don't want to have our ground-based problems worldwide extend into space. Mm. Space is that last area to which, you know, perhaps there is peace for all mankind up there. Uh, But, you know, there are little things that have been creeping into uh, space culture, I suppose, in the last decade and a half, whereby China wants to go and mine an asteroid. It wants to claim an asteroid, mine the minerals of nickel and iron and platinum and other things that are in that, and bring it back for its own use. So that opens up the gates for, well, India can do it, United States and Russia can do it, France can do it, Brazil can launch rockets. You know, so where do you stop before there's the exploitation of outer space? So I kind of think it's kind of also showing that cohesiveness among nations out there. Yeah. So you've mentioned China and its plan. Is it a signatory to this? Uh, it is, yes. Uh, it doesn't stop it from, you know, certain ambiguous conditions to which the Outer Space Treaty does not necessarily cover. Like while it says you cannot have it for placement of nuclear weapons, it doesn't say that you can't put conventional weapons. Now, that just means that your typical conventional weapon, if launched from space to the ground, is going to have an awful lot of trading Uh, what we call firepower Mm. from the warhead to capacity for extra fuel and protective casings coming back through the atmosphere, that kind of thing. Whereas, you know, a nuclear weapon can be very, very small and yet have a tremendous negative impact when it explodes. So There's also politics, because if you're in a country that's spending a vast budget on space exploration, Mm -hmm. at the same time there's a homelessness crisis or there's some other political need, you need something to show for it. So I imagine the Chinese want to be able to say, here, all these precious materials we just brought back justify this The, the cost, this. kind yeah. of, yeah, there is that. Now, it's always been a contentious issue. Why are we trying to send probes to the farthest reaches of our solar system when we can't even sort out the homelessness in our streets here? Mm. You know, and that'll always be the case. And you and I have discussed that before. And I think it's just because of the human curiosity of wanting to go out there, explore, find, discover, bring back, and show just how beautiful the other parts of this world are around us, hopefully to try and, you know, make us all work together again. Yeah. I think it's all well in theory, but if, let's say, they discover the moon is made of gold, treaties could fall apart very quickly. They could. Now, gold wouldn't necessarily be one of the utmost precious metals they would want uh, like oh, really? Why, what are they looking for? Iron, nickel, because these are uh, easily mined to a certain depth from Earth's crust, but we will run out of those. It's all generated from our core, so it has to come out to the outer reaches. However, you've got asteroids jam-packed full of this stuff. You know, platinum is a rare Earth metal, but is so crucial to certain electronics. 
Uh, you've also got gold, which is out there, but in minute quantities. You've got to get an awful lot of volume of space dust and rock in order to get the gold out of it. Uh, it weathers so well in space. That's why it's used on things from the visors on astronauts' helmets to electronics, protective circuitry, uh, or protecting the circuits themselves mm. through gold casings. It's, it's widely used in space. Uh, and yes, it does have a value, but there's a lot more out there too. Right. So eventually we're going to have space piracy then. The same people who <laughs> rob gates and rob cables and so on are going to have well, their own ships and well, steal you know things. What? At the rate of which we've been going into space, you know, with the International Space Station there now, Artemis program and so on, that could be within, you know, our kids' lifetimes. Who knows? Wow. Johnny. <laughs> If you want to know more about the Midlands Astronomy Club, how do you do so? Check us out on Facebook is the easiest way because it's so interactive and there's many of us who monitor it. So if you have a question you'd like to pose to us, that's the easiest way to get us. Johnny Morris, our favourite space cadet. Thank you very much. Thank you. Latest news on the way at 10 o'clock. Oh eight one eight three hundred one zero three. The Midlands one zero three comment line. And when you call, uh, when you text rather, it's oh eight three thirty ten one zero three. Powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Now coming up today, an abuse survivor waves her right to anonymity so that her you'll hear her speak out after eleven. Does your landlord have a problem with rem- some do for insurance reasons, have different objections, and you'll hear what they are later. A 30-year-old Meath man has been jailed for three years for abusing his younger sister at the family home in Castle Pollard when they were children. Kean Farrelly of Kells Road, Old Castle County Meath, admitted charges of rape and sexual assault against his sister Aoife between December of 2007 and May 2009. She was only six years of age when this happened. Our courts correspondent, Frank Graney, has been speaking with Midlands 103's Ellen Butler and says Aoife, who is now 21, waived her right to anonymity so she could inspire others who have been abused by family members. Well, we heard it happened in the family home in Castle Pollard in County Westmeath on various dates between December 2007 and the end of May 2009. Aoife was just seven years of age when it began. Keane was eight years older. Uh, he was 15. We heard it was a busy house. The kids were engaged in lots of extracurricular activities like music and sports. So Keane was often left in the house on his own, minding his little sister. And that, we heard, is how it all began there were some harrowing and distressing details, as you can imagine, about the form the abuse took. And I suppose there's no need to go into them in any great detail on the show today. Safe to say that it was an incredible breach of trust from someone who should have been looking after her and protecting her. The most serious offence, obviously, that he pleaded guilty to was rape. Um, We heard that he raped her four times during the relevant period. There were multiple sexual assaults on Aoife too. Um, We heard that she told her parents what was going on. Um, Keane was about 17 years of age at this point. And when she complained to her parents, we heard that he ran out of the house. He stayed away from the house for some time. And he penned a letter to his mother um, trying to explain and apologise 
for what he did. He acknowledged in this letter inappropriate sexual acts with his younger sister, but he didn't give his parents the full picture. Um, his parents were shocked. Uh, the abuse did come to an end after that, but they took no further action. And that was something that the judge remarked on yesterday when he said that he felt her complaint wasn't addressed uh, properly at the time. Years later then, um, Aoife found the courage to go to the guards. Uh, that led to a criminal investigation. And ultimately, Keane Farrelly pleaded guilty to four charges back in March. He was sentenced to four and a half years uh, yesterday with the final 18 months suspended. So jailed for three years in total. Yeah, so as you say, Frank, the, the abuse would have kind of ended around 2009, but it was only in 2020 that Aoife went to the authorities and, and followed up with this case. That's right, yes. Um, uh, and that's not that unusual, you know, for these historic um, sex abuse cases, for people to come forward years later as an adult. You have to remember how young Aoife was at the time, to seven years of age when the abuse began. She had gone to her parents, and as the judge said yesterday, you know, her complaint wasn't addressed properly at that point. So it would be years later when she engaged with a psychotherapist. Um, she then met with somebody in Tusla and slowly but surely she found the courage then to go to Gardaí. And, and I actually asked her about that experience outside court yesterday because I thought it might have been helpful to just learn from her experience for anybody out there who's listening, finds themselves maybe in a similar situation and doesn't know where to turn. And she described her experience when she went to Gardaí as, as weirdly positive. Those were her exact words. She said it was incredible to sit down in a Garda station for eight hours and just talk in great detail about the trauma that she had experienced at the hands of her older brother in their home in Castle Pollard all those years ago. And she said it was so empowering to be able to share that story. You know, they made her cups of tea. They listened to her. And most importantly, at the end of that very, very difficult conversation, they told her that they believed her. The criminal investigation got underway straight away. And in fairness to Keane, and this was something that worked in his favour when it came to the sentencing yesterday, you know, he did um, accept responsibility for what he did. He wasn't as forthcoming with um, admissions, you know, in that letter that I spoke about earlier that he wrote to his parents after she complained to them all those years ago. But when it came down to it, when the criminal investigation got underway, he did make admissions. He did plead guilty at a reasonably early stage. And, and all of that would have worked in his favour when the sentence was handed down yesterday. But the effect that all of this has had on, on Aoife is just, you know, hard to even put into words. You know, in her, in her victim impact statement um, that was heard at the sentence hearing, uh, you know, she said that he hoped that he would finally pay for what he did. You know, she said that she herself was determined to grow and to heal. She addressed him directly throughout this victim impact statement. And on one occasion, I remember she told him that she wasn't at fault for what happened, that this, you know, whole thing rested on his door and that she would no longer allow him to take up space in her head. She quite literally said goodbye to him as he sat in the dock and told him that she hoped that she'd never see or hear from him again. You know, she said that she had, her whole world had been torn apart by him. She said that she had lost everything because of him. She said her education was deeply affected. Uh, she had a great love of music when she was a child. That has been lost too because of the abuse. After reporting the abuse in 2020, she had to drop out of college due to the stress that it caused. She said that she had trust issues. She found intimate relationships very difficult. She said that she has self-harmed. She has suffered from eating disorders, anxiety, stress, OCD. We heard she has undergone extensive counselling. 
psychotherapy and inpatient treatment for PTSD. So for somebody who is now 21 years of age, still a very young woman, for somebody who have, to have gone to the Guardian the way that she did with very little support and to have gone through this whole process essentially on her own for the most part, you know, it's truly remarkable that she could stand outside court yesterday, waive her right to anonymity because she would have been entitled to it and say, I am a survivor of this abuse. abuse. This is a line in the sand for me. This won't define me. She's a remarkable young woman. And I have no doubt that she will be able to put all this behind her and move on with her life. Yeah, that is true. Truly remarkable by the sounds of things, Frank. Because of course, Keen was a large part of her life. Like they they were living together during those COVID lockdowns. Yes, and and that absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that because that absolutely added to the trauma for her. Um, and the judge did remark on on that too in his closing remarks yesterday before the court broke up, he said that there was a significant degree of violence um, which made the assaults all the more terrifying for a small child in the family home. Again, I don't want to go into too much detail uh, about the abuse. It is very distressing, but there was an element of violence attached to it. And and in reference to her going to her mother, um, he just, the judge, Mr Justice Paul McDermott, described her as brave enough to articulate what was going on. But he said that she had been left then to largely deal with the consequences of the abuse on her own so she didn't have the support that you would expect from your parents after making such a serious complaint. She said that she was left or the judge said yesterday that she was left with a deep sense of betrayal and and that resulted in her losing trust in others and again that was something that she mentioned in her victim impact statement as being one of the devastating effects of of the abuse. Um, Despite that though and I, I thought this was very gracious of her. She said that she didn't blame her parents for not doing more, but she said that she hated the way they didn't seem to understand the gravity and the weight of what her brother, their son, had done to her. Um, she said that he was allowed back into her life, and I suppose that gets back to your point about lockdown, because she did feel effectively trapped um, under the same roof as her brother uh, during the pandemic. And you know, she would have described how she dreaded the thought of even sitting at the same dinner table as him. So just finally, Frank, for people who might be wondering about um, th- those final 18 months of the sentence that were suspended, why would that have been? The, the mitigating factors, I'm sure, would have been would have included the admission of guilt, was it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, as is the case in, in, in any criminal case, an admission of guilt, particularly at an early stage, um, would give somebody a huge discount when it comes to sentencing, um, particularly in cases of of this nature, you know, intrafamilial sexual abuse. Um, it would have obviously saved her having to give evidence. That would have been very distressing to her. So he was obviously given credit of that. He has no previous convictions either. But another um, significant mitigating factor in Keane Farrelly's case was his age at the time of the offending. So Keane Farley is 28 years of age now, but the offending took place at a time when he was considered a child in the eyes of the law. So if he had been convicted as an adult, the judge said yesterday he would have been looking at a sentence of somewhere between 10 and 15 years of age. Such was the gravity of of the um, the offending uh, on his little sister. Um, but obviously because of the fact that he was a child at the time, the judge's hands were constrained with the law that was in place back in 07 and 09 and also with the fact that he was a teenager. So the judge arrived at a sentence of four and a half years, but he suspended 
at the final 18 months of that sentence. He suspended it for a period of two years. And during that two-year period, he was also told that he is to have no contact with uh, IFA, um, either directly or indirectly through social media or otherwise absolutely no contact with his younger sister. And I imagine that was something that was welcomed by her yesterday because she wants nothing to do with him anymore. Again, as I said, she, in her victim impact statement, turned to him and said goodbye. She bid farewell to her older brother. She doesn't want him to be a part of her life anymore. She did say that she hoped at some point she'd be able to reconcile with her parents. Um, she's living in the UK and working in the UK now. And indeed, she's back to work yesterday. It's incredible to think, you know, as she's stood there on the steps of the courthouse yesterday, sharing her story with us and trying to inspire others. She was flying back to the UK yesterday and back to work today. I mean, she's, you know, she's an incredible person. And, you know, I really do hope that when she does seem happy with the outcome yesterday, a lot of people giving out about the sentence, the fact that this young man could do something so horrendous and have such a devastating impact on his younger sister's life and that he was only jailed for three years. I see a lot of people talking about that online. I hope I've explained it in the sense that he was he was sentenced yesterday essentially as a child. Mm. So it was a more lenient sentence than an adult would have got. That's absolutely not in doubt. But what is interesting is that um, when I asked Aoife about her thoughts on the sentence yesterday, she said that she was happy with it. She was happy that he was at least brought to justice. She said in her mind, having you know everything been explained to her beforehand so that she wasn't shocked by the sentence, she said she was hopeful of a sentence of somewhere between three and five years. So at four and a half years, granted with 18 months of that suspended, she said that she was happy because at the end of the day, in her own words, you know, no sentence, no matter how long that sentence was, it wouldn't change what had happened. The important thing for her was that she got her justice. You know, she broke down after she left the courtroom yesterday after watching him being taken taken away and and she said that it's not going to define her anymore she described yesterday as the first day of the rest of her life she said she was always mindful of her surroundings even as a child at seven years of age she said she was always aware of what was happening to her and and again she said that she hoped her story might inspire others and she hoped also that it would be a deterrent to the keen Farrellys of this world who are maybe listening to this maybe abusing a family member or on the cusp of abusing a family member or as was the case here maybe they've abused a family member years and years ago and the point that she was making yesterday is that you know there is no timeline when it comes to justice she got her justice all these years later the Gardaí do take these cases very seriously and she hoped that it would act as some sort of a deterrent for people like Keane Farrelly and that's our courts correspondent, Frank Graney. And you'll hear a little later what Aoife Farrelly has to say concerning her brother. Also today, does your landlord have a problem with remote working? Insurance is one of the concerns, but there are others, and we'll get into that in an hour's time. Next, though, Brian Clonan is here on DIY. And now, with thanks to Aramount Furniture, Clonkolleg Tullamore. Quality furniture for every room at the right price with free delivery. Find Aramount Furniture Tullamore on Facebook. Though Faulkner and him verbally feud. Every Wednesday he's our DIY dude. While his little hardware store sells heaters for outdoor. He knows what gets nailed and what's screwed. Brian Clunan. Good mention he's also lewd. I'm never lewd. That's you. 
thankfully never nude either. Not on Wednesday mornings, anyway. <laughs> no. How are you? Although, I don't know which, that shirt is so... Anyway, no, we won't go there. This is a birthday present. Okay, it's a lovely shirt. Isn't it? Isn't yeah. it? Yes. yes. They didn't have it in your size, no? Oh, 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 oh. Okay. Or is, there some, days. or is there some reason that you've the buttons open open down to your navel? Is it that they won't close, or what's the story? Hang on, hang on. You've got the very top button, okay? Yes. And, and then one three, more. And then three more. One more. Three more. One more. You can't go up here. You look. Work. I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what's known as a Freudian slip. You look as though you're in work. Oh my God! I love it. I love it. I love it. In, in somewhere other than the radio station. Now, first question as we move swiftly on, and I love how this one is loaded. Well, it says, "Hi lads, my current wife." Yes, I've heard this expression before. Yeah, my current wife put washing powder on our tarmac to kill the moss. Unfortunately, oh. it has turned the tarmac white. Now, I've tried washing it off to no avail. Is there a way to fix my tarmac, if not my marriage? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to help fix the marriage unless helping the t- fix the tarmac fixes the marriage. I suspect That's, they're linked. Yeah, yeah OK. So... Um, Two options. So I suppose the first thing is to point out to everyone, we, we have mentioned before on this show not to use washing powder on your tarmac. Uh, it's the bleach in the washing powder that kills moss and therefore it's the bleach in the washing powder that does damage to the tarmac. So there are two things you can do. Um, there is some very good tarmac paint out there and it has improved a lot in that it's it's easy to use, it's quick drying, it's not outrageously expensive. The only downside is, in this case, I would say that the moss, so traditionally the moss is not everywhere. So if you look at, say, you have a long drive, the moss will be at the edges on the bits you don't, you never Mm. drive over. The centre area will be fine. You know, there'll be shaded areas around the house where the, the sun never shines because the house is causing a shadow and there'll be moss there. And then other bits will be fine. So the the only problem with using, and it is brilliant, it is, the tarmac paint is fantastic and it's, it's so easy to use. Everything about it is great. The only problem is it's so good that what if you paint your bad tarmac, your good tarmac now doesn't look quite so good if it's been aged, if you know what I mean. So you end up where the place that looked white now is looks fantastic, but the rest of it kind of shades, pales in, in, into a, a, a thing that you need to do the whole thing. So you need to look at your area and see, am I going to do the whole lot? If I do the whole lot, everything will look absolutely fantastic. So that's a great solution if it's not a huge area. But if you have a big area and only 20% of the tarmac is affected, do you really want to pay the other 80% to paint the whole thing? So that's that's the first thing. The second thing you could consider doing is if you know anybody who does a bit of roofing, uh, if they do roofing with torch on felt, they will have what's known as a roofing blowtorch. And a roofing blowtorch is a long blowtorch, a bit like a flamethrower. You know, that's almost exaggerating you slightly. You see, he gets excited when he well, says I, you, you, I could, I, I know, I know, I know you're like a little child when it comes to these things. So a roofing blowtorch is used off one of the, the ordinary, well, it's never the yellow cylinder. It's used off a red cylinder because the red cylinder, so if you buy a yellow gas cylinder from Flow Gas or Calor Gas or wherever it is, that has butane in it. And if you buy a red cylinder, or a grey cylinder, which is the patio gas, which is used to have 
propane. We would have regularly, we'd people in saying, I want to send her a hot gas. So that's a term that's used in the propane. And uh, it's normally, in this case, a red cylinder with blasts of gas. It's not like your little hand blowtorch. Now, I'm not suggesting, you know, the little hand blowtorches that you put disposable cylinders mm. into. Mm. Don't be wasting your time looking for one of those. And, and the reason I say get somebody who does a bit of roofing, get them to use it, you know, to be dangerous in the wrong hands. Um, because it's, it's huge temperature. Um, but by running the blowtorch over the tar, the hope is that you melt the tar and kind of reconstitute it. So it's a bit like stirring it. You know, if you had something on the surface of, a, of anything, of a pot, of a, if you stir it, mm. you reconstitute it. And this is what you're hoping to do here, is melt the tar a little bit so that the white bit at the top is gone. Gone, or will it just, again, if you use your stirring analogy, will it blend in? And the It'll blend in and become less noticeable. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. there will be a lighter patch. There might be. It depends how much time you give it, uh, how heavy the tarmac is, whether it's asphalt or tarmac. You know, all these things come mm. into play. But it's definitely worth trying if you have access to somebody with a roofing blowtorch. And to go back to the very beginning, as a reminder, only use washing powder on moss if it's on... Concrete. Right. Yeah. But really, just use your moss killers. Or, yeah. or you know. But it's fine. It's, it's not as economical as people think. But don't use in tarmac is the bottom line. Mary in Mullingar has discovered a pile of red insects crawling on her windowsills and they're leaving red spots on the window frames. Okay, so... We, as kids, would have always called those bloodsuckers. Mm. Uh, we all know them. They, they come out only in fine weather. They come out in fine weather and only on concrete windowsills or wall cappings. Now, they normally would only leave the red spots if you squash them. So, you know, don't squash them is the bottom line. But we, we get a lot of this at this time of the year. In one sense, you could say it's a good sign. They're only there in fine sunny days. If you know, and I know we haven't had that many of them, but if the sun is shining and there's a bit of heat in the sun, and they're there at all, they will be there on your windowsills and on your wall cappings. Are they doing any harm? No, no. But so I would always say, look, leave them alone. They almost certainly won't come into the house. They're not, you know. Mm. But if if look, but if I, you're the sort of person who gets the heebie-jeebies, exactly. you want rid of them. What exactly. do you do? See, and you never know what what affects different people what people have the heebie-jeebies over you have Um, a phobia of showering (laughs) not true Um, the other way around actually I get given out for taking too many showers in the day Um, uh, so insectrol or ant powder so anti-crawling insect powder all along the edges or insectrol or detlac or spider spray long-lasting spider spray one of these things that leaves a film behind. The powder works well, but the problem is one wet day, the powder's all gone. So you can decide yourself which one you want to use. Next, I have a lime scale buildup in the toilet bowl and it was leaking in the overflow for quite a while. So there's also a crusty buildup of lime there. I've tried various harpix, but no use. Laura in Clara is looking for ideas. Yeah, so anytime you have a build-up, so in this particular case, it's above the waterline, it sounds like. Certainly the one that leaking from the system will be above the waterline. If there's some below the waterline, use the same product. Take out the water that's there and just get some uh, lime-free bathroom and toilet cleaner made here in the Midlands 
or Haggison Blue or one of those strong surface descalers. And what you do in this case is you brush it on, you leave it for 10 minutes, you brush it on again, you leave it for 10 minutes and then you brush it on a third time and after the third 10 minutes, so after 30 minutes in total, but reapplying every 10 minutes, you then get a nylon pad or a nylon brush and give it a good scrub. Nine times out of 10, that'll do. If it's only taken off, you know, some of it, just do it again. And what you can do with that cistern leak, which will be bad, what you can do is brush it on and then just put a bit of cling film over it to keep it in place and to keep it from drying out. And now you can leave it for about an hour. So the, the descaler will be working away and working away. But the one thing you don't want with descaler is for it to dry out because then it, the, the descaler itself can be hard to remove. So by putting on the cling film, I know it's in a toilet, I know it's, a, it's an upright surface, but it will stick to it just because it's wet. And uh, just as always, make sure you wash away. Everything you use, an acid of any sort. So most descalers, all descalers are acids of some sort. Normally, the likes of the, the lime-free are a gentle acid, but they're an acid nonetheless. And if you leave them alone, they continue to work and you don't want it. So if you used, say, your lime-free descaler, uh, the other one in, in on pipes, and if you left it sitting on the pipe, you you could do damage, but only if you, if you leave it neat and without washing it off. So you have to use a little bit of common sense. That is the voice of Brian Clunan from Clunan's Hardware in Tullamore. And after 11 o'clock today, you meet Aoife Farrelly from Castle Pollard, the young woman who yesterday waived her right to anonymity so her abusive brother, Keen, could be identified. And if your landlord has a problem with you working from home, then I want to hear from you. 083 30 10 103 on text and WhatsApp. Brian Clunan is here from Clunan's Hardware and I suspect another marriage question is weaved in here. Okay? <laughs> All right. Can I ask you, by the way, I just when I heard the tug of war, have you ever done tug of war? Why? No, no, I'm just curious. They often put a heavy guy at the end of the rope, you know, to kind of anchor it. I just wondered, have you ever done tug of war? Strong, muscular. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I haven't. Um, Brian, my husband put new flat capping on a small wall. Do you need to put a protection product on it? to keep it from staining. That implies he says no. So you don't need to, but it is very beneficial to do it. So I would always say, if you're not going to paint it, and painting capping and windowsills can be quite problematic. There's a lot of work in doing it. And I quite like the plain concrete look once it's kept clean. So you either clean it on a regular basis, which is fine, or in this case, but you would it's not a huge area so you would benefit from putting on two coats of a thing called water seal so water seal we've mentioned it before it's crystal clear it goes on milky white which makes it very easy to apply because you know exactly what you've done and haven't done but it dries out completely clear and there's no skill set in putting it on you know you just slap it on two coats the two coats go on almost immediately one after the other. The second coat goes on while it's still wet and it will definitely, it'll mean less chance of getting dirty, much easier to clean, less chance of algae forming on it. It'll stay that snow white infinitely longer and it's not expensive, particularly in this case, it's not a huge area to do. In fact, if it's a very small wall, the only problem is going to be that you'll have to buy a five litre container, <coughs> excuse me, for a, I don't know, 25, 30 euros. Um, and you probably won't need all of it. So that's the only downside. But Will it keep? 
Um, no, it, it, not really. But what you could do is just look at all your windowsills and see, will mm. I do the windowsills mm. at the same mm. time? Maybe get a bit of, sa- well, wash them. Well, I would always say a light sanding and then wash them with hot soapy water. And then when they're dry, if you have some left over, it's not a great thing to do to your windowsills as well. Yeah, waste not, want not. Let me pass this picture from Trish in Tullamore. And she's wondering, what are you staring at? Uh, I'm staring at, uh, it might be liverwort in flower, but it's basically a, 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 a fungal growth, uh, not a fungal growth, a lichen growth, a, 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 a moss type lichen growth, and any of the moss killers will do it. Right. Uh, so any. It, it seems to be just at the very bottom of the wall of her house. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of got those star-shapey flowers. Yeah, I don't, it just won't come to me now. But it, it, if you spray on the moss killer and mix it a bit stronger than normal, so whatever the mix is, have it. So if you're mixing it, if it's designed to be mixed 10 to 1, mix it if it, 5 to 1. If it's designed to be mixed 5 to 1, go 2.5 to 1 and just spray it on. And a day like today, you should see the benefit of it within less than a week. Kieran. He had his chimney replastered some months ago and he was told to use a paint called Murfill, but he can't find it anywhere. So what would you recommend for this chimney? Well, I suppose the first thing is sometimes you see chimneys are not painted at all because they can be, once you paint something, you have to continue to paint it in time to come. So sometimes people make a policy decision not to paint the chimney because it's so hard to get up at it Mm. if it's in a very difficult spot. Um, I haven't heard of that now, I have to say. I would always recommend for something like that um, an exterior paint. So look, any of the exterior top quality paints tend to be top quality. But I would say in this in the Santex one, just because it allows better movement of water through the paint in and out, it's micropores and it allows stuff to disappear, to evaporate back out again. But any exterior paint really should be okay. Next, caller has snails everywhere in the garden eating all the veg that is coming up. Is there a natural way to get rid of them? Well... Most of the slug pellets now are certainly all the popular ones are organic. So they don't affect birds, other animals, and whatever peculiar way they work with the slug. And you don't need as much of them, by the way. Whatever the way they work, you need to scatter less of them. Um, and the slug just, it does die. So pot's natural, I don't know. I mean, the other thing you can do is you can put copper wires down. But they always seem to. So if you were to put a copper wire around the patch, mm. if they cross over the copper wire, they die. Whatever oh. electrolysis thing goes on there with slugs, I don't know. But the pr- point is, they seem to, they don't just always come across the line. They seem to find other ways in somehow. I never quite understand. Um, so, but there are your two options. Uh, a thin line of copper the whole way around or um, or even up and you know, a few mm. lines of copper through mm. it. Um, but then you have to pay for copper and yeah, copper is yeah, expensive yeah, yeah. now. Or, or use so slug talks. Or use the organic slug talks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brian Clunan is here from Clunan's Hardware in Tullamore until 11. Mr. Fixes on Midlands 183 with Aramount Furniture, Clancolic Industrial Estate, Tullamore for quality furniture for every room in the home. Available at the right price and with free delivery to your door. See aramountfurniture.ie. Another eco question. So Chris wants to clean a wooden fence and is wondering if there's a more natural product to do it. Um, well, any most of the the algae killers are are not very strong chemicals. Um, 
there is a, a, a an organic a moss killer. It doesn't do a huge amount. It only mixes three to one. Um, so that's the weed and moss buster, organic weed and moss buster. Uh, but there are other ones out there as well. Like just brands that come to mind uh, straight mm-hmm. away. Hilda recommends ducks for eating slugs. There you go. Very good. What else do they eat? Do they don't eat the veg? Is what I'm wondering. I don't know. And your torches on. Y- you you end up with, uh, I suppose, replacing one problem with another. Then yeah. I recall the lady in Athlone who started oh, yeah, off with yes. one duck. Yeah, yeah. And was soon feeding the family. Yeah, a large family. Hmm. Good morning, Will. After all the heavy rain that fell over the last few days, I've noticed a water stain on the ceiling around the Velux window. When I investigated, I noticed a few hairline cracks in the lead flashing around the Velux. What's the best way to repair the flashing? So I suppose, honestly, the best way to repair the flashing is get somebody to replace the flashing. But if you're not going to do that, Look, it's, it's probably just as good, to be honest with you. If you get a thing called Everkrill, there were probably other similar things out there. It's a thick, thick brush-on um, product that sticks to flashing. It sticks to every surface, but not everything sticks to flashing. Whatever's in flashing, some products just don't adhere to it at all. So Everkrill comes in clear or grey, so either will be fine. Look, no one's probably going to see it up there anyway. Mm. Um it's not cheap, but you're only doing, in this case, a small area. So if you were doing a whole roof, it gets expensive. But if you're just doing the flashing, so you're going to do the flashing and both sides of the flashing. So you're going to cover another inch both sides of the flashing to make sure. And it's a very thick product. So it just brushes on. Um, it does stick in wet weather, but do it in dry weather. It, these things, even though they say, you know, works. The other thing is there will be a film of stuff there. So make sure and wash everything down. And I would say wash it down with methylated spirits because then it's dry straight away and it really cleans so brilliantly well. You're, you're sure everything is gone. Put on the Everkrill and then get rid of the stain inside. You will have to use a stain stop before you repaint. Don't just repaint it. It will bleed through. We've had it here on the radio show a hundred thousand times um, where people have painted and it just comes through and comes through and comes through. So you have to use a stain stop, a primer, a stain stopping primer. All any of those products will do a water stain. Just when you mentioned that nobody will see it up there, eventually, you know, when the Jetsons come true or Back to the Future and the flying cars yes. are a reality, we're going to have to worry about a whole new angle on the house. Yeah, that's true, you actually. Know, make sure the, the roof is clean. Yeah, the number of people who... Um, we've we've had it before where people um, decide to paint the roof tiles, mm. but they just paint the front of the house because the back of the house faints out to the field. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, flying overhead, it must look quite peculiar. Unusual, yes, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Amy suggests sawdust put down between your plants will stop slugs getting near the plants because they become stuck in the sawdust. Oh, does that work even if it's wet? You'd, if, if, yeah. it, if it only works dry, I don't think it's a solution. It's not an but Irish it, solution. It's not, it's not an Irish solution. But it works regardless of being wet or dry. That's a brilliant solution. Mick in Edenderry has bats in his garage and he's installing a new garage door in the next few weeks to seal up the gaps. Now, his concern is, OK, that means they'll be trapped in the garage, which he doesn't want. Sure. But he's also aware they are a protected species. Yeah. So he's not sure where he stands. He, you know, 
it's more humane or batane or whatever yeah. to get them out. But is he breaking the law? I would say, look, every your garage should be ventilated anyway. So maybe just put a vent hole in. They'll always find a way out, to be honest with you. But if you're in doubt, just put one. So if a vent, as a rule, is just a hole in the wall with a plastic cover in the inside or a metal cover, and the same again, and one on the inside, one on the outside. So that's what a vent is. A vent is simply, it's a window without glass in it, if you want to call it that. Just It's a hole with a, a grid on the inside and a grid on the outside. So I would say in this case, before you put in the garage door, maybe get a hole saw and drill a hole in the, in the wall to provide ventilation without putting on the plastic grid. Mm. So they'll fly in and out through that. Well, I mean, once you put up the garage door, they will always find a way out. It's probably not necessary. They can fold themselves. I, I, I remember when I was involved in, in a primary school, it was on the Board of Management, and a thing came up about there was bats or a, there was something setting off the alarm at night and eventually worked out it was bats. But we couldn't find them anywhere. And then I noticed there was quite a gap behind the... Uh, Blackboard, and there was just four screws. Now it was an eight by four, eight foot by four foot blackboard, a full sheet of plywood painted black and just screwed to the wall. And we took it off, and there was eighty six bats. Wow! Behind the blackboard. Now it was a, a napped wall, so a napped is that slightly rough surface that you'd often see in the outside of a house, but it was in the inside of the classrooms for some reason. So if you if you fell against the wall, you'd graze yourself, mm, as mm. opposed to if you fall against your mm. own wall inside, it's very smooth. Mm. But um, that was enough of a gap. But that was enough of a gap is the point. So look, they will find a way out. I would su- I would suggest, but you know, is there windows in it? Leave the window open for the moment. Um, you know, and it, when they're finished breeding and, and, and inactive, you know, maybe close the window at that stage. So little Brian Clunan in primary school was still doing DIY. Yes. By the way, I brought I, a, a bat when I was in primary school. A bat flew into our house and it went into the wall. It slid down and went into an umbrella, you know, an upside yeah, down yeah, umbrella. Yeah. So I took it out and I put it into a clear jar with holes in the top of it and brought it uh, completely in innocence now brought it in to show the teacher who I presumed would be equally fascinated as I was she was not she wasn't impressed at all no but you had great fun yeah well but that wasn't my intention yeah 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 Thanks, Brian. He's back next Wednesday, 20 past 10. You'll find him at Clunan's Hardware in Tullamore. Good morning. Now, still to discuss today, Paula Nocton will be here, mum to Archie, and indeed the person who has, for the last few years, uh, with George and Isaac, his brothers, tried to raise awareness of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which destroys hearts and minds every single day. Archie, unfortunately, unwell in hospital in Dublin, but the support and the love that the family from Roscommon has received is just overwhelming. She'll be here in around 15 minutes. And does your landlord have a difficulty with you working from home? It seems some are concerned about insurance. Others have different reasons to object. That's at half past 11. A Westmeath woman who was abused by her older brother when she was a child says she's now planning to move on with her life after getting justice. 21-year-old Aoife Farrelly waived her right to anonymity after watching her brother, 
Kean Farrelly of Kells Road, Old Castle, County Meath, aged 30, being jailed for three years after the court heard he raped and sexually assaulted her in the family home in Castle Pollard on dates between December 2007 and May 2009 when he was aged between 15 and 17 and she was as young as six. Speaking after her sentencing, she says she was silenced by him for many years. The whole process has, has definitely been difficult, but I'm a lot more content now than, than I was. You know, I mean, no sentence would have been long enough at all. You know, it was, I was six, I'm now almost 22, but, you know, even just hearing the headline sentence was enough for me. I, I always said it, it had to be three to five. That was what I had in my head and I got that. And I, when I came out of that court, I just broke down because everything that I've sacrificed for the last 21 years almost has uh, has finally made it all worth it hearing that and, and watching him go away and finally getting to pay for what he did to me. You know, I hope that if there's anybody out there that is in the same boat that I am, that, you know, they see me and they hear my story and they read about what happened to me and they just find that little bit of courage that I had two and a half years ago to do what I did and to stand here today and, and be able to finally share this massive part of me. But I even said it, it's not going to define me anymore. You know, I am Aoife Farley, this happened to me, but it's, it's not going to define me anymore. Today is the start of the rest of my life and I am I'm so grateful that I finally got my, my little piece of justice that I needed to, to keep going. And obviously for the only reason we're talking to you today is because you did make that very difficult, afraid decision to waive your right to anonymity. Mm -hmm. Can I ask what was your thought process there? Why, why did you decide to do that? I was silenced by him. You know, Kean said that it had to be our little secret. He, he said that nobody could know, you know, that I was a good girl for, for keeping quiet and going on all these years I always knew that it happened you know I was always mindful of my surroundings it was always mindful when he was near me but you know I always knew it happened and the fact that I was never given the chance to actually speak about it when I started the process I said right that's it straight off I told I told the guardian I said that's it I am waving my right to anonymity everybody needs to to know because it's not spoken about you know interfamilial abuse is is catastrophic the, the effects that it has on, on families and you know my relationship with my parents I even spoke about it in my victim impact statement it it is horrific you know the devastation that he has caused and nobody speaks about it because you know it's rural Ireland and rural Ireland is the enemy of progress but I hope that you know if again if there's somebody in my boat that hears of this then you know maybe for the rest of the key and Farleys out there then it will be a, a big deterrent and, and more people will hopefully speak up I first spoke out about it March of 2020 and was in lockdown with him, trapped in the house. Was only able to speak about it then when I had moved out in the October and that October, that first day in October, it was it was amazing. You know, the, the ladies in the Garda station, you know, it was tea and coffee and did I want to take a break? And it was so, so positive. It was so empowering to know that I was able to spend eight hours there and and finally share every little piece of my childhood trauma and for them to go, we believe you. 
and that's what it is today is that I am being believed and it is just it's amazing you know I can't stop smiling and it's so weird because it's such a horrific crime you know they're horrific crimes it is absolutely disgusting what he did to me but I'm still here I'm still standing and I'm still smiling and I will not stop smiling oh it has been horrific it, it absolutely he has shook me to my core you know I completely physically emotionally everything stripped back bare bones I am a shell of what I once was you know I was a happy child I did have a happy childhood until the abuse started and I, I genuinely was a shell of myself you know I, I even had to spend four four and a half months in St Patrick's University Hospital trying to deal with it you know finally getting treatment doing an addiction program you know trying to deal with my PTSD but it's you know self-harming since I was a child eating disorders everything anything that you can think of I have I have been through but you know I've been through the ringer and back and eventually he's he's not going to have that hold on me ever again I'm, n I'm not going to let him have that hold on me ever ever again you know I even I addressed him in my victim impact statement and I turned around to him in the, in the courtroom and I says you know goodbye you will no longer have a hold on me and you're no longer part of my family you don't have a place in my family anymore so I'm back to Scotland now tonight I'm back to work tomorrow it's same thing as always but you know that little piece of solace that I have right now is is going to just keep me going you know there was so many times so many overdoses attempted suicides and I'm still here and this has just really given me a boost that I needed you know I was it was awful trying to get through the last even the last two and a half years since first speaking about it 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 was horrible you know um, so many times that I just lost hope you know this whole process obviously was delayed with Covid but getting here today is, is just really made it worth it. So, you know, I have a whole life to live. I have the whole rest of the world to see. And that's what I'm planning on doing from today is actually starting to live life, not just survive anymore, but actually live my life. And that is Aoife Farrelly, very confident, very eloquent in her statement after her brother Kean was sentenced to three years in prison. Now, next, the family from Roscommon who have been raising awareness of a rare muscular disorder for more than a decade as three brothers are all suffering Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Unfortunately, the eldest is in heart failure in hospital, but there's still so much love and support being given to this family and in spite of all that she has on her plate, his mum Paula wants you, if you can, to still donate to research that may help others in time to come avoid the same experience that she has been through. Gordy and Lee Shoffley are warning about another scam and boy, this one looks at a glance very authentic. You get a letter and it has the Gartha emblem and it says it's from the Phoenix Park, from the office of the commissioner himself. And it says, dear sir and madam, and talks about their investigation for uh, cyber infiltration, uh, for cyber pornography, for exhibitionism. And they talk about the criminal code and so on and so forth, refer to different uh, sections of the law. But they also say in the course of their investigation, they have... Uh, looked at webcams 
and if you have been on chat sessions and perhaps displaying a little bit too much in those chat sessions, then you may have committed an offence. And they ask within a very strict 48-hour period that you would send to them evidence that can be examined. And this may include access to your machine, to your laptop, to your computer, your tablet, whatever you happen to be on. Now, there is a rather telling clue that it's not a real letter from the Gartha Commissioner because it says commissioner.gartha at gmail.com is the email address to which you should send all of these personal details. And you can be absolutely sure the Gartha Commissioner does not use Gmail. So, it is a scam. If you get it in the post, ignore it. Yeah, well, it just shows, unfortunately, again, people are preyed on because of different guilts they may have in their life, and there's always somebody reinventing a scam to try and prize money from your hands. So, don't be fooled. Now, still to discuss today, landlords who don't want tenants working from home. And if we're trying to embrace this remote working culture, that's going to be a bit of a problem. We'll find out what their point of view is in a few minutes. Now, for years, you've been following and supporting the Join Our Boys campaign from Roscommon. Archie, George, Isaac, all born with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a rare condition that unfortunately is life-limiting. And their mum, Paula, she has on many occasions joined us on this programme to raise awareness and to try and raise money so that others won't have to go through this. Paula, good morning. Good morning, Well, And if it's any consolation, I was born in 1995. Before 1995. <laughs> yes, that is, that is a small consolation, all right. Yes, we're all in this together then. Tell us about Archie, because he's not doing so well at the moment. No, he's not well, and I suppose the first thing I want to say is I'm not sure how well this is going to go, because I'm really on the brink emotionally, but I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Um, And the reason I said to Sinead I was very happy to try and speak to you is because I think what's happening now demonstrates what we've talked about over the years, and that is the how predictable the unpredictability of Duchenne muscular dystrophy is. It's a catastrophic muscle-wasting disease that still has no treatment or cure in 2022, which is mind-blowing, really, when you consider it is the biggest genetic killer of children in the world. The wow. number one genetic killer, wow. and we still don't have a treatment. We don't have a tablet we can give these these boys and the rare, very rare girls that also have Duchenne. So Archie, and really I'm doing this to, to make that point, but also if there are other parents out there of children with Duchenne, I think there's a lot of learning in what has happened to Archie in the last seven weeks. Archie started having gastric symptoms, kind of felt like indigestion and pain and then feeling nauseous and it would ebb and flow and we took him to the GP and he was given something for what they believed was gastritis and in that consultation I raised the issue that you know there is evidence that boys with Duchenne will present with these symptoms but they're actually cardiac symptoms 
he had an ECG and we were reassured that it wasn't his heart. You know, mm. this was definitely mm. a gastric mm. thing. So the edited version is after seeing 10 doctors in seven weeks, um, including hospital doctors and casualty doctors and surgeons and medics, and having um, a scope put down his into his stomach and into his small bowel, um, and obviously finding nothing, all of these symptoms were related to his heart. Every single symptom, although it appeared to be a gastric symptom, was, was because his heart was failing. Your first instincts were right. And, you know, if only that helped. <laughs> Mm. You know, mm. if only that made us feel better or would would have been some consolation to Archie. Now, the other side of that and being a health professional, you know, the caveat is Duchenne is a rare disease. Lots of doctors, you know, I had to explain to each of them, you know, if he's having any procedures about anesthetics and how complicated Duchenne is. And they were very good about that. And they, under, you know, they took that on board. But it's very easy with a disease like Duchenne to, you know, dismiss things because it did, you know, to the even to the trained eye, you would think, oh, my God, he's definitely got something going on in his gastric system. But it wasn't. So Archie ended up, um, thank God for the nurses on St. Therese Ward in Port Yonkler. Archie's 16 now, um, which means he's no longer under pediatric care, which just about is mind boggling for me because he's 16, he's not 18, but that's the way it is now. There was no other beds in Port Yonkler, so he ended up on on St. Therese. They did a favour and gave a bed. He was under the medics and then the surgeons, and then they realised, actually, it's his heart. So he was sent off to Galway, where he received excellent care under the team there in coronary care. And um, But they really wanted him to go to the matter because that's the centre of excellence. And they've worked very, very hard. And luckily, a bed came up late last night. Oh, so good, where, good. Because I, I, I saw your previous Facebook post, I think it was yesterday, and you had one of those moments where you thought he was getting the bed and then suddenly it evaporated before your eyes. So eventually, eventually, it became available. Yeah, and I suppose, look, it highlights the the difficulty we have in, in the state in relation to... Um, coronary care beds, ITU beds, you know, that's a whole other debate, Will, that I know you've had previously with other people. But, you know, and, you know, somebody texted me and they said, oh, I'm so sorry, Archie didn't get the bed. And the point I made is, but that's okay because somebody that needed it did. You know, that this is the problem we have. You know, whoever needed that bed at that moment, they got that bed, but we just don't have enough of them. Mm -hmm. So we're just, we are so grateful for the medical teams, the the bed managers that managed to make this happen and to everybody on social media who are just people are they would their kindness will kill you emotionally because people are so compassionate but the problem we have is Archie is 16 years old and he is in heart failure and you know the bottom line is that isn't because of his heart that isn't because of the health system that is because of Duchenne muscular dystrophy and the more people that know about this disease, um, the better. And as I was saying to Sinead earlier, one of the struggles we have is that the boys look so well. I took the boys, the other two boys to see a doctor last week, and she said, I can't believe how well the boys look. Now, she could see Duchenne boys all the time. Mm. And she's saying, they look so fantastic. They're so handsome. Um, and in a way, that's a distraction because 
we can't see what's happening inside their body. Yeah, it's a cruel now, deception, really, isn't it? It is. It is. So, you know, we need to keep raising awareness because even if whatever we do can't specifically help Archie or George or Isaac, you know, there are other parents that we're going to be told this week. They're going to sit in a consultation room and be told your children have Duchenne or your child, you know, and they're going to be where we were in 2012. You know, things haven't moved on enough, quickly enough. And the only way we can do that is by translational research. You know, look what happened with COVID when minds and money came together. You know, um, we had, we've got the first MR, MNRA vaccine. I mean, that's, that's a thing of science fiction a few years ago. Mm. And I, I, don't know how, I don't know how we make this happen, Will, but all I know is it's terrible to be a parent and to sit with your child, you know, in a situation like this. And Archie is amazing. It's the second time he's looked death in the face in 16 years. The last time was when he was two. Um, but, you know, there's only so many chances for a kid with Duchenne. And we just hope and pray that they can do something in the matter for him. We can only send our thoughts with you. And... You are on a very difficult journey and I admire that despite the strain you're under, you still find time to remind us of the bigger picture and that five euro or five pounds or five dollar donation, whatever you can make, wherever you may be. You've shared on the Join Our Boys uh, Facebook page uh, the means through which we can support. So, Paula, take care um, and we'll be thinking of you. And thanks to you and Sinead. Well, you're always so kind. Thank you so much. Take care. Paula Nocton from the Join Our Boys campaign in Roscommon. If you dine out or you get a coffee from time to time, you may see on your receipt a service charge applied. And a new law will ban bars and restaurants from using that term unless the money goes directly to the employees. And as part of legislation to make tips more transparent, any mandatory staff, any mandatory service charge must go to the staff. And it has to be stated clearly where any extra charges are going if the money isn't treated as a tip. Because the Enterprise Minister, Leo Paradkar, has said it's not acceptable for people who are being asked to pay the tip having no idea where the money goes. Midlands 103's Chloe Farrell has been out in this time of inflation asking how much you're prepared to tip. Well, I think it's good. I mean, the staff work hard day to day. They deserve the tips that they get, and this law ensures that they do get it. So, yeah, it's a, it's absolutely a good thing. Yeah, I usually give 10% or something nice to them. Generally, restaurants, I suppose barbers as well. I mean, they all work hard. They might as well get a little bit extra on the side. Normally, where I come from, um, actually, it's, you're supposed to pay 10% of what you have uh, paid for the, for the bill. So that 10% has to be the tip. So I think it's fair enough. I think I still have that culture that, you know, it has to be 10%. I, I think um, it's really important that uh, as someone working in the industry that all of the tips are uh, evenly distributed out between the staff members. They're there, uh, given in kind from the, from the people that uh, come to the restaurant specifically for the staff. So they should be uh, distributed that way. I, I always tip everywhere we go, whether it's a taxi or a restaurant, um, uh, mainly out of courtesy, but also especially if you feel like you've had really good service from whatever 
Um, so yeah, definitely. Based on how, it's not like America here in Ireland, it's uh, based on how you feel the experience was. So if you really enjoyed your meal or, you know, if you got on well with the, the server at your table, um, you definitely tip more. We could leave maybe tenner on the table if we're having um, if we're having a meal out for um, a night out. Uh, it depends on the, the, the... We'd all go together sometimes and give them a person a good tip. If I'm getting my hair done and I'm exceptionally happy and the, with the person, I definitely tip them as well. I like to look after people. It's good to me. I think it's a good thing. I really do because my son works in the hospitality and really they're not paid enough. So the tipping should be should be mandatory, like really, you know, for extra for the staff. I normally tip maybe 10%, I do a, use a percentage, 10%, and I would tip my hairdresser. <laughs> he deserves it, he does a good job. I really do feel sorry for the young people who, who don't get paid enough, and I always leave a tip. You know, I think it is um, good that it's brought in because... The staff in hotels and restaurants do work very hard compared to a lot of other, say, jobs. Um, and I just know from experience that when the tips are left for the staff, the say the managers or the people that own the business um, would take them before the staff get to have it. And then it's only divided at the end of the year. But not all the tips that have been like accumulated would be divided, so it, it would be given to the owners part of it. But no one like keeps check of it. So no, it is good that the, the law has been brought in. And that report from Midlands 103's Chloe Farrell. And you may have heard somebody mention taxi drivers there. Very important. And just to offer a little story, going back ooh, 20 years, more even, uh, I briefly worked as a hackney. And at the time, you just got a percentage of the takings. And it would work out at less than £2 an hour. And I know there's inflation since then, but it's very, very misunderstood how much is made by the people who bring us home safely, in comfort, in warmth and dry at all hours of the night. And I'll never forget one chap. He tipped me £10. That was nearly more than I made for the entire night. Now, he did have a very attractive blonde with him and he was probably just trying to impress her, but I didn't care. 083 30 10 103. The Midlands 103 text and WhatsApp line. Powered by Lamb Brothers Arden Road, Tullamore. Home of Toyota, the top-selling car brand in Offaly. Midlands 103. Coming back to our previous conversation about Aoife Farrelly from Castle Pollard, the young woman who yesterday waived her right to anonymity so that her abusive older brother could be named. Trish wants to say, well done Aoife, we need more people as brave as you are because anonymity only protects the criminal. A different caller says, will God love her, what amazing bravery she has to stand up and to talk out and to encourage others to come forward. She really is superhuman. What I can't understand is why these paedophiles get such light sentences. All these stories I hear of rapes and other attacks all involve light sentences. So in three years, this man will be 33, free to have his own children, free to live a life as far as I'm concerned, a crime so heinous is akin to murder, to drug trafficking. It really is as sickening and should be treated as such. 
Well done, Aoife, and thank you for encouraging others. That came in on WhatsApp on 083 30 10 103. Landlords are objecting to tenants working from home. If you are working from home and looking to rent, you may have difficulty finding a property. Landlords say some properties are not suitable for remote working due to a lack of space. Others have talked about insurance or the increase in their electricity and heating bill. Some say the communal space is for them to remote work and not for their tenants. Pat Davitt is the boss of the Institute of Professional Auctioneers and Valuers. He's been telling Sinead Hubble that landlords can include certain terms and agreements when renting out their property. I've heard it mentioned from some from some uh, from some agents uh, that landlords are requesting this, and I think it's, it, it's. I know that from the ones I've heard, it's because uh, some landlords are getting complaints from tenants that are in properties that some people are working from home and that they're going around with telephones and computers and everything and the space that they have in general the, the, the space for everybody some of it is interrupted but it depends on the letting and it depends on the type of the property and what it's left for I think is really what, where, where, where we are with this. That is an issue that if people are in shared accommodation, if it's three or four people living in a house together that don't know each other previously and they're working from home, there's very little space in houses for people to have their own space, bar their own bedrooms to, to work from home and many people don't like being confined to the room for an entire day. Yeah, I think it's something that we never sort of thought about during COVID, but when COVID is over and it continues, I think we do think about it quite a bit. Because if you've got three or four people in a house and you have one person that's working from home in the sitting room or on the kitchen table or going around to the telephone and speaking uh, on the telephone and taking telephone calls and even worse, maybe having people come to see them in the house, using the house and not alone working from home, working from home for business. I think that causes, it causes lots of problems and it causes the, the, the latter part of that causes problems from a landlord's point of view, from an insurance as to who's responsible for what and if something happens. Um, but I think in general, uh, if it's a uh, husband and wife and the property renters are working from home, I don't think once there's space in the house, I don't think there's any problem there. Um, but I think in, in shared accommodation, it is a problem. And I think it's going to be more of a problem for the future. I think as cars can go on, that people want to work from home. And are there any health and safety issues then when it comes to a tenant working from home? Well, there are health and safety issues because there are obviously there's more electricity being used, there's more heating being used, so obviously there's more of a possibility of computers maybe going on fire and phones being charged and charged overnight, and there's more risk that people need to be very very aware of. And so I think they would be them. But if they're bringing people into a house, to a private house uh, for a business, if you had a client coming to see you or something like that in the house, they need to be very very careful. There are health 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 and safety issues there and insurance issues there as well. And when it comes to insurance issues then, is the would the landlord potentially be uh, liable if a tenant injured themselves while working from home? Um, I'd say so much as, as a tenant injured themselves, you have to be able to prove negligence with most of these insurance cases, I'd say with all of them. So you would have to be able to prove negligence against the landlord. So if something wasn't right in the property and uh, somebody got injured, yes, but like if you had somebody come to see you in the house, that may well be a different thing. If the trip to cross a stool or the trip to cross a cable or the trip to cross something 
and they could prove negligence from that point of view, well, then the landlord will obviously be brought into it because the chances are the person, the tenant, will probably have their own insurance to cover this. So, and then if there is cover this, the landlord, the landlord may well have to tell his insurers before such time as he rents that property. And that may well cost them more money to do that, or it may well, there may well be not that number of that great number of companies that would actually take that type of risk. So maybe the price is going to be higher. So that, that there are sort of issues that you need to be aware of. Like the work performance, and, that, you know, it, it needs a little bit of extra care when you're a tenant going to do it as well and make sure that you make the landlord aware of what the situation is. For many years, I lived in rented accommodation and shared with, with people I didn't know. And one of the issues always seemed to be about the bills. And obviously, if somebody's going to be working from home and the other members of the household are out and about, then there is an increased cost um, for everybody else then because electricity, heat, as you said, and more power and electricity being used for devices that are being plugged in all day long. So that could cause a lot of arguments as well in the house. I think that's I think that's a recipe for a lot of arguments. There's no doubt about that, and a lot of disquiet about who's going to pay for what. So I, I I think that if you're one of a number of people that's renting a property, you need to have these rules down in that you know what's going to happen and who's going to pay for what. It's going to be very very difficult. That that situation would be very very difficult. Um, I, it's a it's it's a real recipe for disaster, especially for the heating bill when it comes and an ESP and the price of it down at the moment and the electricity price of it. So like it, it, it really is. I, I don't know how you would face into it. Uh, being honest about it, if only one person is working from home and maybe three other people are living at the property, um, you'd have to come up with some sort of a recipe for it. Yes, of course. If somebody wants to rent out a room in their house and it's owner-occupied, but they say that the sitting room is off-limits because they've turned that into their office, are they entitled to do that and tell their tenant that they won't be allowed to access certain rooms, that they will just have their bedroom and, say, the kitchen? Um, Yeah, well, I would imagine that they would because they would be the conditions that they would rent the room on. And what's um, more important there is that uh, most of those arrangements aren't registered with the RTB, uh, so that it's a, it's a landlord and a tenant, especially if the landlord is using the house themselves. So if it's a room somebody rents, it's a room somebody rents. And um, now, if there is a common area like a sitting room, well then fine. But in a lot of cases like that, there isn't the, the landlord himself or the landlord, if it's a family or whatever, use that themselves, and, and they wouldn't want to share by somebody walking from home. So I, I think in that situation, the renting property needs to be very uh, careful as, as well. You know, they need to find out before they rent the property as to whether you can work from home in the property or not, because it could affect other people's uh, arrangements in that property. And in many of these properties as well, with telephone coverage and uh, broadband coverage, there's only a particular parts of the house that get these coverages. And again, that causes another problem. So this, you know, you want to be very, very sure of when you rent a property, especially if you're going into a property with a landlord, uh, that they're only renting a room as to what the rights are and what you can do and what you can't do. And if you're not happy, obviously, then with what the accommodation is offered to you, well, then you would obviously look for something different. And can landlords put down what they like in adverts in terms of that they're looking for somebody over 30, um, you know, professional, non-smoker, no pets, can they do that because it's their property that they're renting out? 
Um, I'm not sure about the over 30 bit because I think that may well be discriminatory, but uh, definitely with the pets, yes, of course they can because it's their property and if they don't want pets, they don't want pets. Um, and if they don't want somebody working from home because of hassles that they may well believe that it causes, well, then fine, because maybe they will put that in the advertisement, but then it will bring, it will bring it to the surface so that it can be discussed if the landlord is going to rent the property to somebody who's working from home. But yes, I would imagine they can well do that if they wish, like they own the property and they're renting it. Um, and I think renting now are a lot, they're a lot different than they were many years ago. The people took a property and you took a property for yourself and your, your, your wife or yourself and your husband or for four people and then you have five or six people in it. And I think that day is sort of gone. I think landlords now are more, uh, are, 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 are keeping much better eye on property to think of lots of scenarios and are very aware of the fact that uh, different situations could cause them hassle in the future going forward. And I think that's what they're really trying to, to wear with. And that's Pat Davitt from Caddy West Meath. He's the CEO of the Institute of Professional Auctioneers and Valuers and a representative group for all auctioneers. Uh, speaking to Sinead Hubble, by the way, who put the programme together under the supervision of Cameron Clark, uh, even though he wasn't working. He's an outstanding, outstanding individual. Very committed as she glares at me through the window. Um, we'll be back on your radio tomorrow morning from nine and enjoy the rest of your Thursday. The Afternoon Show with Carl is next. Wednesday, Will, not Thursday. Anyway, talk to you soon.